You're listening to the Charge Forward audio blog by Chargebacks 911, bringing you the latest in payments and fraud. To learn more about how Chargebacks 911 can help you reduce chargebacks and recover revenue lost to fraud, visit us online at chargebacks911.com. This episode is a replay of a webinar entitled The Changing State of Global Fraud and features experts from Chargebacks 911 and 5 by Okay. Thank you, everybody, everybody, for joining us today. Um, I appreciate you taking time out of your day to be here with us. Uh, my name is Jared Wright. I'm the VP of Marketing for Chargebacks 911. Uh, for those of you not familiar, Chargebacks 911 helps merchants by preventing credit card disputes and recovering revenue from chargebacks that we were unable to prevent. Uh, I'm really excited to welcome, and John, I apologize. I'm such a first name guy. I don't think we ever uh, discussed how to pronounce your last name. So I'm going to give it a shot. Uh, I'm not even going to do it. John, who's the not even close. Not even close, Jared. Okay. <laughs> he's the chief uh, commercial officer for Five Buy. Uh, and just off the top here, John, um, if, if you want to take a minute to tell everybody about Five Buy and, uh, you know, maybe let me know how to pronounce your last name. That'd be great. Right. All right, Jared. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm John Solheim from Five Buy solutions and we are a fraud and risk consultancy so we advise clients on how to manage the various vectors of fraud and we perform assessments and we actually do quite a bit of work with clients on an ongoing basis of actively managing fraud and risk so uh, we enjoy a very large footprint in terms of global uh, coverage and we supply uh, expertise with credentialed fraud analysts with a team of about 70 very talented people that can perform these types of services for large brand name organizations. We've been around for about 12 years uh, doing this work, so I'll go into a little bit more about what we do later in the presentation, but excited to be here, Jared. Thanks for having me. And and so so it's uh, Solheim? It's it's yes, Norwegian. Exactly. Yeah, exactly like it looks. I'm, I'm not sure why I had so much trouble with it, so I apologize <laughs> about that. Uh, well, welcome, John. I, I'm excited about today's talk. We'll get into to the uh, meat of it here in just a minute. I just want to do some housekeeping at the top before we get started. Um, everybody always asks, uh, this webinar will be recorded, um, so we will uh, have a copy for everyone um, at some point tomorrow. Um, the webinar will be structured a little little different um, if this is the first time you've joined us for one of our webinars. The first half will be a presentation. Uh, I'll talk for a little bit and then John will um, provide some of the information that he's here to speak about. And uh, and then the second half of the webinar will be where uh, we answer many of the questions that were submitted when you registered. So um, the first half of the webinar it will have a very visual element to it. So if you can, you know, try to give us your undivided attention for that part, kind of close other windows. Uh, but the second part will be less visual. So if you want to kind of just listen to that part, that would be uh, great. Um, the last thing I want to talk about, um, you know, if, if you're a fan of podcasts, we do re-release these webinars after 30 days on our podcast. So if you're an audit, auditory learner, please check it out. It's Charge Forward, all one word with Chargebacks 911. You should be able to get it pretty much anywhere that you listen to your podcasts. So I'm gonna get started here. And uh, for those of you that are joining us for the first time, 
Um, I like to ask a dumb question right off the top. And I, you know, I do this as a personal exercise because I think it's important to be fearless and admit what you don't know because it's the only way that you can learn. Um, and I, I just happen to have a lot of dumb questions. So do, do you mind, John, if I ask you a dumb question before we get started here? Let's hear it, Jared. Okay, great. Um, so, so really my question today is, I know that you're gonna talk about consortium data, and that's a term that I sort of knew about, um, but I really hadn't thought about. It wasn't really something that was um, anything that, that I was dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but since then, I think I understand in the abstract what consortium data is. Um, mm -hmm. So that's it's a two-part question. If you could maybe take a minute and talk a little bit about that, maybe sort of make sure that your understanding and my understanding match up. Um, but really the question I have is around privacy because I know in, in my world of marketing, privacy is a really big issue. They're getting rid of cookies, you know, right. figuring out ways to target people. There's always a, a push and pull with giving consent. And, you know, now you go to websites and you have to give consent and all this information. So um, consortium data, is that, is, is, is that system or the, the way that that information is exchanged and housed, is that something that, um, that privacy is a concern? Uh, is, do, you, do you struggle with that? Is, is that an element there or is it completely, a completely different thing and I'm just relating it to something that's familiar to me? Uh, first of all, it's not a dumb question at all, Jared. It's a, it's a smart dumb question. So <laughs> very technically focused as uh, in terms of consortium data, it's a it's a terminology that's been coming on the scene relatively recently. So just let me explain, you know, what what it is for our audience. If you haven't heard the term, it's thinking about data on a very large scale. So uh, some of you may be familiar with the term data lake, right? So depending on how deep and wide your data lake is, it's in terms of the ability to you know see more patterns and glean more insights the more data you have. So the concept of consortium data is uh, really bringing in multiple streams and multiple rivers into making a very, very large data lake, if you conceptualize it that way. So it's like a data ocean rather than a data lake. Uh, so there's an advantage to having more scale on data. So hence consortium data is taking disparate sources and bringing it together in one place. So very simply explained if you visualize an ocean versus a lake. Now, uh, that sounds great. However, Jared, your question is very point, which is what happens to privacy and are there concerns about who gets to see my data in this big data ocean? Uh, and that is in fact a, a challenge because uh, you, know, you do have quite a bit of sources and if you're an entity that's participating in these types of uh, research or using data for your fraud management, uh, one thing to know about is, are you able to opt in? You know, a lot of our clients uh, are concerned about data privacy. And so just make sure that uh, if you are involved in looking at different fraud solutions on a platform basis, that you can, you can actually opt out. And some of our clients have actually opted out of participating in data lakes or what we call uh, the consortium data because of their hyper concern about you know uh, privacy and once there's more parameters because you can actually uh, click on click off some of the things that you can share um, that would be you know areas where you can maybe access more information so in fact it's very relevant uh, you can opt out 
and it's evolving as we speak, Jared. So it's not a you know binary situation. I think it's on a case by case what you want to see versus what you participate in sharing with the broader you know industry that you're looking at. That actually sounds very similar to the conversation around privacy in, in the in the marketing sphere. So um, that's that's really interesting to know. And I am very heartened to hear that this is a recent term. Um, I thought it was just me, so um, I'm, I feel I feel much better, and this is a, a perfect example of why it's important to be fearless and ask the dumb questions. Okay, um, so I, I I was telling John that I'm I'm real excited to to have him here to speak today because uh, it's it's just really easy for um, us to have sort of a common interest, uh, and and that's around chargeback prevention. Uh, and typically, if you want to sort of simplify it down, um, chargebacks happen because of factors that can be divided into pre-transaction and post-transaction factors. Uh, and a, a business should have a strategy for identifying and preventing the uh, chargeback factors that happen and are able to be identified before the transaction, and then have a strategy for resolving um, disputes and uh, identifying issues that happen after a transaction. Uh, and so you can think about it, chargebacks 911 wheelhouse is the post-transaction and flybys wheelhouse is the pre-transaction. So I think there's a lot of synergy here uh, just, just in the, you know, the broadest of terms. Uh, but, and also for a merchant, when you are, um, uh, you know, looking at and you're talking about your chargeback problem, uh, the the division of pre-transaction, post-transaction is not nearly as clear, right? Because you have essentially at the end, the result is the same, right? You have uh, credit card disputes that weren't able to be prevented and that were escalated to, to use the chargeback mechanism. Uh, so you have a bucket of chargebacks uh, and you have to then sort of identify why these chargebacks are happening. And what we talk about is we talk about uh, the, the process of creating three sort of separate buckets. Uh, criminal fraud, which is, uh, uh, excuse me, criminal fraud, merchant error, and friendly fraud. Um, and uh, criminal fraud is anything, that's what John's gonna talk about today. Uh, merchant error are things that you've done as a merchant that have contributed to chargebacks. And friendly fraud is really a, a broad uh, umbrella term for sort of anything that that uh, anything left over, right? So that there may be an element of merchant error in there. So maybe you shipped a product late, um, but uh, um, the uh, consumer doesn't have a right to file a credit card dispute because they didn't receive their product on time. Um, and uh, if you look at the visa reason codes, uh, you know they've done a really good job and they've really thought this through and they've created buckets essentially for, with this in mind. And so you have the, the uh, the 10 codes, which are fraud, uh, and then you have, you know, consumer disputes, which are generally uh, merchant error friendly fraud. So if you want to look at that visually, you, you have this really nice division. You say, okay, well, here are all my fraud chargebacks, right? And now I have these customer dispute chargebacks that are going to be either merchant error or friendly fraud. So all I need to do is go through this and identify things that are happening operationally within my business making sure that those things are resolved so that, that I'm not contributing to my chargeback liability. And then everything else is the, the chargebacks where really the only viable option for you is to um, refute it, right? To, to provide evidence and represent the, uh, the dispute and uh, try, to, try to recover your revenue. Um, so, so it's a fairly straightforward process, chargeback management in general. The problem is 
that uh, in any given chargeback, uh, the reason codes are not a really strong indicator of, of why it happened. Uh, and this is for several reasons. I'm not going to go into to too many, but for example, uh, there isn't a, a a reason code for uh, you know <clears throat> if if somebody contacts their bank and say I don't recognize this charge or I didn't make this charge, the assumption is that it's criminal fraud. Where it could be that a family member made the charge or that they forgot to 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 uh, you know that they made a purchase or they didn't recognize the purchase. There's all of these other variables, and those are all going to come through as fraud reason codes. Also, I should mention just real quick that that the most malicious type of friendly fraud are often coded as actual fraud. So that is to say, somebody that's trying to get something for free uh, is more likely to to claim that they never made the charge um, than they are to to claim other some other kind of customer dispute, which is uh, <clears throat> theoretically easier for the merchant to uh, to refute. So th so you end up with a situation like this, which is why I think it's really important that merchants almost as a first step uh, really make sure that they've done as much as they can to identify and prevent the pre-transaction uh, third-party criminal fraud. Uh, because then you're basically back in that situation that you were in earlier. Now, it's not an easy situation. I sort of glossed over it because I want to I want to give as much time as I can to John. But if you think about it, you have, um, you know, identifying merchant error is is a very complicated process. And that's not something that's very difficult as an organization for you to be good at because there's so many different areas within the business that could impact chargebacks. I mean, you're talking about your phone system, your customer service, your fulfillment, your operate, you know, there's 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 so many different things and and being able to successfully audit within a company is very difficult. Um, but in so much as you can I, I, I resolve as much merchant error as possible, then you have a fairly easy task ahead of you uh, in that the the majority of your chargebacks that remain will be instances of friendly fraud. So those can be overturned. Um, and this is actually the process that we utilize in the way that uh, we we approach things when we work with a merchant. Um, in order to get the, their recovery rate up as high as possible. So, um, and, a, and a key component of that is, is you have to get the criminal fraud off the table. You have to get that under control because otherwise if you have a chargeback situation like this where you have criminal fraud mixed in, uh, it, is, it becomes infinitely more complex. Uh, so, um, so being able to, to be proactive and have a good system to identify the third party fraud is essential if you want to be effective at the entire chargeback problem. Okay, John, let me give you a keyboard control real quick. All right, thank you, Jared. And uh, I'll, I'll let you walk through the, this next part. Okay, great. It's um, like I said, it's it's great to be here because there's quite a bit of synergies in the topic that we're discussing today, which is the you know the front end as well as the the processing and management of fraud. So uh, the reason that I'm here is uh, our firm actually is an advisory and consultancy in fraud management. So, you know, we specialize in looking at data trends as well as advising clients on how to structure uh, your fraud organization. And it's really about uh, the concept of active management, right? So fraud isn't something to be looked at after the fact. It's actually uh, ideally part of your business processes and Oftentimes clients need some assistance on how to do that. So we uh, are specialists in looking at fraud organizations and assessing your current risk structure 
and also managing fraud on a daily basis. We we have been around for about 12 years and we are in some of the most well-known brands actively managing their fraud ecosystem uh, on their behalf. So we do managed services. And so we earn a reputation of uh, very high regard because we have about 70 uh, very talented people globally that are credentialed in fraud uh, analysis as well as anti-money laundering and several other uh, fancy uh, acronyms that bring some expertise to the table, which is what we do is we look at how to help clients just actively manage this scenario, which is fraud because it requires uh, an active ongoing, you know, uh, proactive uh, steps to make sure you can keep this under control. So let's go into uh, some of the uh, areas that people are interested in. What about this you know, what's happening in the fraud landscape? Now, we'd like to say, well, what's old is new again, right? So, you know, are there some major trends happening in fraud today? Yes, but they are born out of, you know, fraud techniques that have been around for quite some time. So, like money laundering has been, you know, if you've been in business or have seen it, this is an old concept, but uh, ideally, you know, how do we actively manage some of the things that we've known about? It's just the iteration factor. Uh, what we're seeing are fraudsters getting much more clever uh, because they're actively deploying tools and platforms to be more efficient in using these techniques that essentially go back to the fundament fundamentals such as money laundering, stealing of your assets, or uh, theft of your identity. All right, so the number one trend is automation. So AI and machine learning, you probably have heard these terms, but many folks don't appreciate the fact that fraudsters are actually quite good and sophisticated at deploying these advanced tools. You know, you've heard about botting. Uh, these are, you know, taking uh, large uh, amounts of, of entities and just bombarding certain websites or hijacking, these are all done at scale because of mass automation. So there are some uh, entities that are very good at this and are very sophisticated. In fact, data scientists that are in fraud organizations are quite good. And so there's going to be this need to take a look at how is your organization combating a sophisticated fraudster? So like Jared talked about the front end, um, you know, fraudsters are the ones who uh, are organized, you know, instead of being the friendly fraud, the, the ones who are nefarious actors really are deploying world-class tools and techniques to take advantage of the economics that are out there in terms of being able to steal your identity or steal your fungible assets, all right? And so uh, we talk about digitalization of commerce. This is an uh, interesting commerce, uh, con concept because the easier the entities uh, make transactions, such as the you know, complete digital identities, uh, rapid transaction speeds, uh, it's great for customer experience, but it also opens up a risk category for fraudsters to take advantage. So one of the reasons that uh, this is a concept to continue to look into is that uh, digitalization offers new payment methodologies uh, and new areas for fraud. So this needs to be done in terms of looking at your organization 
you want to have a positive tension, if you will, uh, easier transaction speed, but also how to mitigate the risks that come in in terms of fraud in those new scenarios. All right, let me go to the next. There we go. All right. Uh, all right, as I talked about sophistication, um, fraudsters are using tools that if you're not using, you're already behind, right? So the whole concept is that the majority of uh, fraud on large scale is done by uh, fraud syndicates and organized crime, and in, in some cases, state entities that are looking to hijack accounts and exploit certain things um, that would allow them, for example, to facilitate money laundering. So there's a very large scale that's happening with uh, platform usage. So you know, even if you're a small merchant, you might not even be aware that, hey, this doesn't apply to me because you know my business isn't exposed to large scale uh, syndicates, but in fact, you might be. So just be aware that this covers global, this covers all small to large enterprises, and it depends on what they're going after, but they're looking for you know, viable entities like your email accounts, your uh, client uh, information, and hijacking payment methods. So all those, if you're involved in any type of transaction as a merchant or as an enterprise, you're probably at risk of being exposed to an organized uh, fraud syndicate, right? So new exploits. We talked a little bit about uh, some new payment methodologies like buy now, pay later. That's coming on the scene. It's growing rapidly hundreds of percent per year in terms of uh, growth, which is exciting for consumers perhaps, but it opens up new fraud vectors. So be aware of, you know, again, speed and transaction ease are uh, potential areas for fraudsters to exploit. Uh, we all heard about crypto and other payment uh, methodologies. So, you know, there's continued uh, interest in the value of stored payment methods and how to manage the fraud and risks that are around that. So again, your fraud organization and, and strategy needs to comprehend how do you actually facilitate great customer experience while managing some of these additional risks that have come into play because of digitalization. I wanna talk a little bit about what do we do in this case? We have all these new risks that are still the same, but just more sophisticated. Um, first of all is invest in managing your fraud space. You know, uh, can impress upon this audience and on all merchants in general is fraud management should not be an afterthought right fraud is happening and it's not going to go away uh, you can never eliminate fraud completely you know there's another misperception that oh i can take care of fraud and it's done you know i've got i bought some software and i'm good to go well in fact it becomes aged very quickly if you don't refresh data if you don't import some new uh, updates that you know fraudsters are using because they're moving much faster than legitimate actors in most cases. Fraudsters are very good at pivoting. And so, you know, we implore our clients as well as the whole community of making sure that you invest in fraud, not as an afterthought, because it's very expensive uh, afterwards, but in fact, do it ahead as part of your business processes. 
right? Uh, sophistication of your tools, making sure that you are in fact looking at what's out there. Chargebacks 911, for example, is a great tool suite to help you with that side of the business, but also on the front end, what are you doing in terms of using uh, certain tools to look at your fraud profile, your risk score appetite? You know, are you able to manage the number of transactions and look at patterns of fraud? Because it comes in so many different vectors that uh, software at scale helps you look at a large amount of volume. You know, human uh, analysis will never go away. I think that's part of the strategy, but if you're doing quite a large scale of transactions, if you haven't deployed, you know, some of the best in class uh, suites out there in terms of fraud management, then you're already behind. So it's very important to look at, uh, are you using the right tools? Are you keeping them fresh? And are you actually having an organization, whether it's inside your company who are trained fraud in fraud or managing that actively, or are you outsourcing? There's multiple ways of doing that, but it's important to, to bring in the concept of fraud is not an afterthought. It's part of the business process. It should be part of your business strategy. Okay, and finally, it's, well, what do you do? Well, iterate, okay? Uh, you, there's this whole saying about, you you know, don't bring a knife to a gunfight because what's happening out there is that fraudsters are getting more sophisticated, as we talked about. Uh, you have to continue to upgrade, uh, meaning your skill sets, your awareness, your ability to make sure that you're aware of what's happening and deploying the latest techniques because they're moving much faster uh, than a lot of entities are even considering. So just keeping apprised of what's happening, such as you know, becoming educated, being involved in these forums, looking at what's happening you know, in the ecosystem, uh, just be always apprised of what's happening in the fraud space because there's uh, so much movement um, in terms of, you know, money laundering. Uh, we talked a little bit about what's happening in the geopolitical sense. You know, when you see conflicts um, between nations, you know, that changes sometimes the fraud activity because there's a need to move more, you know, money around to support some activities that haven't been perhaps uh, in, in our purview for a while. So, you know, it's important that fraud is not something that you look at on occasion, it's really optimizing it for the current situation and looking around the corner. So very important to evaluate your data sources. We talked a little bit about uh, the beginning is consortium data. You know, is your data fresh? Is your data part of a larger uh, amount of information that's perhaps industry sourced? And that can give you some insights. Are there patterns that you're seeing that you haven't seen before? Remember, fraudsters operate on the fringe, and oftentimes they try to you know, sneak in, if you will, and, and do things that are below your radar. So um, it's important to look at uh, aberrations in those types of transactions that uh, you know requires you to look at that very constantly with a keen eye and with perhaps even software that can help you. So, all right. So with that, let me... Uh, kind of wrap it up. There's a lot of content there and I'm sure there's a lot of questions, but just, just a primer and um, on just generally look at fraud, manage fraud actively and keep updated. 
All right, Jared, back to you. Yeah, great. That was some great information there, John. Thank you for um, kind of going through the basics there. And, and now we're going to dive deep into some of the questions and hopefully provide some specifics to uh, to the audience as some of the things that they were uh, thinking about and want to know. Um, <clears throat> Krista asks, as more merchants accept instant payments and move away from cards, how are disputes and fraud impacted? Um, and so, John, I'm going to let you talk about this one. But just, you know, before that, I think it's important to acknowledge um, that, you know, as Apple Pay and PayPal and all of these other sort of wallet solutions um, begin to become popular, um, it's important to understand that while they can be connected directly to a bank account or many of them can actually, um, you know, serve as a warehouse of funds, um, the the majority of time, the, the most popular solutions still have a credit card connected to them. So uh, in, in a lot of ways, the uh, cardholder or the consumer has sort of more avenues to to dispute um, than they than they do when they just uh, use a credit card. So if, if I go to PayPal and I use a credit card in PayPal, I can still contact my bank. Now, my bank may, you know, inquire, depending on who, who my issuing bank is, my, my bank may require that I contact PayPal before I contact them. But um, the point is that, that PayPal has a, a sort of a dispute process internally. And later on top of that, I have the chargeback protections from the, the card schemes um, that I can activate through through my issuing bank. So um, <clears throat> the um, like at first, I think the assumption is that as, as actual physical credit cards are uh, phased out, that the credit card, that the chargeback problem is gonna uh, decrease. Um, but the truth is, at least on the chargeback side, um, it actually, the, the merchants have more sort of complex situations to deal with, at least in a lot of cases. Yeah, Jared, I think that's right. And again, this is one of those things about iteration where, you know, you're, you're having to keep apprised of what's happening in the payment space. But uh, on top of what you were just saying, I make sure that people understand, you know, credit cards aren't going away. So there's going to have to be that process of management also. If your chargebacks, um, you're seeing multiple payment sources, be mindful of the denominator, which is you know, the number of, of chargebacks percentage-wise, it's probably this community knows that you have to maintain a certain threshold. And if you're seeing different payment methodologies and you're re reducing the number of credit cards in use per se, but you're seeing still you know, the same rate, if you will, of chargebacks, you're going to potentially you know, break a threshold. So you're actually more exposed to cost in some cases there. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, too. I, I guess the assumption there is that, you know, if, if, for example, fraudsters determine that PayPal is not an easy target and you have half of your transactions going through PayPal, the fraudsters are going to go down the, the other uh, channel. And so you've you've essentially doubled your chargeback rate as a result through that um, that, that processing method. So yeah, that's a really interesting point and something that merchants should definitely be aware of. Right. Um, uh, the next question, this is definitely for you, John. Um, Francisco was wondering about uh, ways to relay information to law enforcement. Should they, uh, should they report it to local authorities, to the FBI? What, what do you recommend there? Is that something that a merchant needs to do, should do? Um, can it be automated? What, what's that process usually like? Yeah, absolutely. You know, part part of being, um, you have to fight fraud. We don't want it to just, you know, something that we manage. We should also provide feedback through the through the uh, law enforcement community because sometimes, uh, you know, your 
you know, tip could help bring down a large syndicate, right? So if, if the law enforcement doesn't know about a certain potential uh, fraud ring, you know, we, we just cannot assume that they know about every entity that's out there. So it's uh, really a great uh, piece of advice to report some interesting behaviors that you're seeing or potential uh, fraudsters. And so there's a couple of entities that uh, would be your go-to when you see fraud. You know, there's the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, for consumer and, and identity frauds. Of course, identity theft is one of the largest forms of fraud out there. So the FTC wants to know about those patterns. They want to, they want to know about um, these entities and, you know, so report to them. Uh, for general fraud um, issues, the FBI is always a go-to source because they do have a an extensive investigatory, obviously, uh, entity that they will look into um, uh, entities as well as, you know, patterns, things like that, that nature. So if you suspect something that's on a broader scale, uh, FBI would be a great, you know, go-to source. And then IC3, which is the Internet Crime Compliance Center, okay, that's for Internet uh, fraud. So basically everything can intersect through the inter in, uh, Internet. So IC3 is a great uh, organization to also contact if you uh, suspect something nefarious is happening with your transactions. Okay. That's great. Okay. Uh, Randall wanted to know what can be done to limit return fraud? Um, he says the latest trend in our space has been customers returning empty boxes to our third-party return partner and requesting refunds. Um, and so, John, you and I talked about this a little bit. Uh, you know, the thing, the thing that this sort of reminds me of is the idea, um, we've written about it kind of a lot, there, there, there oftentimes within a, an organization, there's a little bit of a tension between friendly fraud and return fraud. Um, and the reason for that is because merchants uh, want to take a posture of limiting chargebacks as much as possible. They want to limit very unhappy customers that are going to feel like it's um, the, the only course of action that they have is to contact their bank. And so what they do is they create very loose, very um, generous um, return policies. And that, of course, invites <laughs> abuse on the other side, right? So you have, it's like a balloon. You squeeze it on one end, it sort of gets bigger on the other end. You have the same problem, you just sort of move it around your business. So it sounds like, Randall, there might be some of that going on, um, but that's always something that we encourage merchants to really have a bird's eye view of. Because if, if, you, if you make a change in one area of your business in order to, to solve a problem, you have to sort of always be anticipate the consequences and be able to measure the consequences. Um, in fact, I always talk about with things like this, the importance of maybe even A-B testing to really even see, you know, are we moving one expense over to, an, to another expense? Because with return fraud, you don't have a recourse. With a chargeback, you do have a recourse. So um, with a return fraud, it's a little bit more difficult. But, um, but John, you had some sort of specific solutions or some specific things that merchants could do to, to address this situation? Yeah, Jared. I think it's uh, it's a it's an interesting question when they said uh, Randall's question about latest trend. In fact, this was it's been around for a long time. Where uh, remember fraudsters look to exploit vulnerabilities, and so what happened is that items that are transacted or sold that have small form factor and high value are often very uh, target rich for fraudsters. And what's you know when you say empty boxes. 
Uh, in some cases, in fact, some of our clients have seen this directly. So we've been involved in some investigations that relay um, this concept of open box where perhaps they're seeing a large number of returns on a specific SKU. Uh, let's say it's a cell phone uh, and the box itself is, is empty or in fact with something else in it that's not the actual item. And so you have, you know, the, the need to like what you talked about is A-B testing and having a comprehensive view of fraud because sometimes in the interest of making it a, a frictionless experience for your customers, uh, maybe the return team just says, okay, I got a box back and they don't really look at it or they don't understand what's in it um, and they'll just credit back immediately uh, without the full view of looking at the product. Uh, so that, you know, obviously is not a good idea, but you have to have both the customer service side as well as the finance side involved and have processes to really, you know, not make it completely full of friction, but also reasonable because uh, fraudsters take advantage of gaps. And as soon as the gaps are filled, then they kind of move on. In this case, we also see a lot of social network sharing of information on how to how to do, for example, open box or uh, misdirects. And you, we've seen that happen where maybe somebody saw that this worked and then they kind of posted, here's the instructions on how to do it. And all of a sudden that one merchant sees a major spike in this type of fraud because there was some social information sharing. So, you know, it's kind of a loose fraud syndicate. Maybe they're not as sophisticated, but be aware that if you don't have good controls, then that word gets out. Um, there's some, you know, potential high spikes that, that could be you know, seen until you put some more controls in place. Uh, the other thing that we've seen is like uh, if, if shipping errors, like if, if returns aren't going back to your warehouse, for example, um, you have to work with your logistics providers because we've seen fraudsters actually uh, return products close to the site of shipment, meaning maybe down the street or in the neighborhood, but not exactly to your actual facility. And we've seen clients just go ahead and, you know, credit back uh, clients because again, their their process wasn't comprehensive and they didn't see the uh, specific uh, item returned physically. Um, and then so work with your logistics providers, whether it's a USPS, uh, they have an uh, investigatory arm, and the other you know, commercial entities such as UPS, FedEx, they also have fraud uh, analysts that look at transactions. So make sure you're diligent about that, but you, you don't want it to be completely frictionless because you are going to be exposed and people will talk about it. So you have to kind of have a balance there. <clears throat> the, uh, Approve wanted to know uh, how to reduce non-fraud chargebacks. So th this is sort of a complicated question, and I don't want to go too far uh, in the weeds here. I mean, I think th there's there's a lot that you can do purely from a sort of operational and customer service standpoint, but you're going to run into, you always need to be careful of running into this sort of um, exchange of value situation that we were just talking about in the last question. So, um, you know, you can, you can have a very loose return policy. You can have a very, um, you know, robust over communication policy uh, you know with your consumers uh, but but that that may create additional liabilities uh, but there's a lot that you can do try to make sure that you have as few sort of dissatisfied customers and that you've taken into account all of the issues that can create problems 
um, is, is really the best that you can do. There's not a lot from a pre-transaction standpoint that you can do to prevent uh, friendly fraud chargebacks, but there is from a service and product quality standpoint, operation standpoint, there is some things that you can do. Um, just, just, you know, try to keep it within reason, try not to, to create additional liabilities for yourself. Um, and then there's, there are some products that we have. So depending on how, you know, what your chargeback rate is, how many chargebacks you're dealing with, um, there are some, uh, post dispute pre-chargeback resolution options where, uh, you know, essentially when the cardholder contacts their bank, uh, it gives the bank some additional tools that they can utilize to resolve the dispute other than a chargeback. So that may be requesting additional information. It may be requesting a, a refund uh, confirmation, um, but it allows you as the merchant to avoid the chargeback system and kind of just and, and keep that uh, chargeback rate low and, um, you know, eliminate some of the sort of uh, mistaken instances of friendly fraud. Um, so um, there's some options there and I'm not going to go into too many details there, but if, if this is something that you're interested in, if you're struggling with chargebacks, please reach out uh, to me or uh, to, to um, John and we can walk you through some of these options. Uh, okay, Gamu wanted to know um, what department within a uh, small to medium business would uh, typically own fraud prevention? And um, he wanted you to speak a little bit to the technical requirements of implementation of solution. Okay, well, I'll take this one. You know, I'll I'll use the the famous phrase. Well, it depends, <laughs> right? So first of all, it depends on the size. You know, SMB. There's such a range in what that scale is, how big your organization is. But we generally advise that you know, there's ideally a shared type of awareness and process around fraud management. It shouldn't just lie in one, but definitely strongly controlled by finance and accounting would be an entity that needs to be aware uh, and perhaps even have team members that are in the fraud space working in that organization uh, along with customer service. So what we see is that if you have, you know, again, fraud is not an afterthought. It shouldn't be uh, installed as a silo entity in your organization that then nobody wants to talk to because what we see is that sometimes fraud is, you know, it's uh, it's a topic that no one likes to, to discuss and it, it really becomes a problem if it's not visible. So make sure fraud is in a, in a team that actually has uh, quite a bit of visibility and control such as finance and accounting would be uh, largely, you know, what we recommend, but having that customer service element, perhaps there's a, you know, a dotted line scenario, it really does depend. So it needs to have visibility, it needs to have, you know, control, and it needs to be within an organization that can be held accountable to KPIs. So those three things really matter. Okay. All right. And then it looks like we're getting, we're getting pretty far into the hour. So I'm going to answer this next one, and then we will um, make sure that we answer the rest of these by email afterwards. Um, <clears throat> if you asked a question during, or if you have a question that um, occurred to you during the webinar, please enter it into the questions. Um, we commit fully to uh, answering as many questions as we can. And uh, and if we, we are unable to answer it, we will make sure to answer it after the webinar. Uh, Jill wants to know what phrasing is needed for consent or agreement by the purchaser. Um, <clears throat> So, and, and this is, I think, pretty much every webinar, regardless of topic, somebody asks a question similar to this, unless I'm misunderstanding Jill's meaning here. I think, 
I think this is, she's looking for the magic bullet. Um, Jill is asking what, you know, what phrase can we put on the checkout uh, page? What, you know, terms can we have them agree to that uh, eliminate their ability to file a dispute? Um, and unfortunately, there really is not, you know, there's not a legalese way to protect yourself from chargebacks. Um, so, you know, most of the things that you can do from a preventative standpoint are <clears throat> common sense things. So that is to say, if you have a recurring billing reality with a transaction, if that transaction is going to recur, make sure that that's displayed clearly um, so that, that when somebody checks out, they anticipate it. Uh, you know, if you have a, a, a shipping that's longer than the industry average, make sure that that is very, very clearly displayed when they check out and maybe even have them actively agree to that information. Um, those are the types of things that you can do. There's not really language that you can do that uh, either guarantees that they won't be able to file a dispute or even guarantees that you would be able to to win the dispute. Really what you need to to be able to demonstrate is that you have done your due diligence that the uh, purchaser is the person that they said that they were and that they um, they fully understood the terms of you know the transaction whatever it was whether it was the shipping was going to take two weeks or, or whatever it is um, if, if you try to bury all of that inside of legalese even though the legalese from you know <clears throat> you know i guess maybe more legally sound um, it's actually probably going to be harder for you to overturn that dispute. So using very simple, very candid, very straightforward language is what we recommend from a dispute prevention standpoint. Now, if you want to have an additional layer of revenue recovery through some some additional legal process or some collections process, you know, that would be something where you would probably want to make sure that your language was was um, <clears throat> a little bit more specific or uh, you know, but that that's not something that that I would be able to to comment on. Um, I wish there was a magic bullet. If there was, I would tell you, but I just, there isn't, unfortunately. Okay. All right. I'm going to go all the way back up to the beginning here, and I'm going to put my email and John's email back on the, uh, the main page. Um, so if you have any questions, if you want to, uh, you know, complain about today's webinar or, um, tell us what a great job we did, uh, uh, you know, please reach out to either John or myself and, um, we're, we're happy to, to talk to you and uh, provide uh, any any support or help that you have with any problem that you have. Um, if if I can't help you, I'll definitely introduce you to somebody on my team that will. Um, thank you so much, John, for joining us today. Uh, thank you everyone for for being here and uh, um, <clears throat> listening to this webinar. I appreciate uh, everybody taking the time out of the day. Hopefully, we were able to provide at least a, a, <clears throat> a kernel or two of information that that you'll be able to implement within your own business. And uh, look forward to next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jared.